the Romans, it's probably the most complete exposition of Paul's theology. It's the only non-occasional letter that he wrote. He didn't write it to a congregation that he founded. He didn't write it to a congregation that he had visited. He was writing it as an introduction of himself and his theology. The letter to the Romans is therefore critical in understanding Paul's thought on the entire theology of salvation, uh, the field of systematics known as soteriology. The um, letter is found at the beginning of the Pauline corpus of letters within uh, most modern New Testaments and comes to us from a um, well-established collection of manuscripts. So first of all, how does our Bible come to us? Did it uh, fall down out of heaven to Mount Sinai and packed in leather bindings in the King James Version? No. The King James translation comes to us from manuscripts that date mostly from the 10th century to the 13th century, very late in the transmission of the text. More modern translations uh, come to us through a critical uh, analysis of earlier manuscripts. The basis for the text of Romans as found in most modern translations is being passed out to you. You see the very first, the papyrus manuscripts, written on papyrus, that's why they're called that, are identified as uh, with the letter P. P10, P40, P46, P113 are four of the more important manuscripts. There are several other papyrus manuscripts that underlie most modern translations like P26. There are several others, but these are the most, um, most important in most modern translations. You'll notice P46 is the largest collection containing most of the letter to the Romans. It, its breaks are mostly due to critters having eaten the material that it was written on. The dating for P46 is a tough one. Most modern scholarship has tended to date it to right around the year 200 AD. However, back in the 1980s, it was redated to the beginning of the second century, somewhere actually the end of the first century, about 95 to about 125. Um, I tend to accept between 100 and 125 as being the more likely dating for P46. So that would make it by far our earliest attestation to the text of Romans. P46 also contains most of the letters of Paul, at least fragmented, and was originally a collection of Paul's letters that was in independent circulation long before the canonization of the New Testament. Okay? So, when, when, so the Philippians that we studied before, then when were they Philippians, coming from here too? Papyrus Philippians 46? would have come... Papyrus 46 contained a large percentage of Philippians as well. In fact, for all the letters of Paul, P46 is a critical source for our modern, modern translations. The second grouping you see are the Uncial manuscripts written on parchment in all capital letters. And the first three in the list, Sinaiticus, which that little X thing, that's the Hebrew letter Aleph, it stands for Sinaiticus. And then 
A, Alexandrinus, and uh, B is actually Vaticanus. Those three large manuscripts are the most important uh, complete copies of the New Testament and especially of Paul's letters and the letter to the Romans. All three of them date to the 4th or 5th century. Vaticanus is actually a little earlier than Sinaiticus by maybe 20 years and we're talking these date to somewhere between 320 to 350 AD, the early to mid 4th century. Alexandrinus dates a little later to right around 400 to 425 AD, the beginning of the 5th century. However, its text of the Pauline letters is extremely valuable and in some ways is equal to uh, Vaticanus. These three lincials are, uh, are often called the great lincial manuscripts. Most modern translations today are based on a, a synthesis of the readings found in those three biggies and several of the most important papyrus manuscripts, all analyzed and compared and contrasted. But there are other manuscripts, and I listed quite a few of those that are sometimes very important in the translation process. <clears throat> Three, you find the minuscule manuscripts, which are written on parchment or paper and are found in upper and lower case. And I've listed just a few of the more important ones from this collection. You'll notice that they mostly date to the 10th century or later. In other words, uh, 1100 to 1200, sometimes as late as 1400 AD. Wow, look at that. 205 is to the 15th century. Notice one of them in this list is actually dated to an exact year, 1087. That's possible because the scribe actually dated his manuscript. How very <laughs> helpful of him. I wish more of them had done that. 104 is dated to 1087 AD. Most of the manuscripts that exist today, copies of the New Testament, this is true for letters of Paul as for the rest of the New Testament, most of the copies of the New Testament we have are minuscule manuscripts. What's the number you decide? The first number. That first number, that's the code that scholars have used to identify each one. You notice the papyrus start with the P. The uncial manuscripts, for at first they used the letters of the alphabet in English or in Greek. And then they ran out of letters of the alphabet, and so they started using numbers that began with zero. And they're up to 0575. <laughs> so that kind of tells you that there's a large number of Lincio manuscripts, but there are thousands of minuscule manuscripts containing part or all of the New Testament and or Old Testament. And today when you hear about the majority of the text, and when I talk about the majority text, in, when we are reading through Romans and there will be a question as to the reading and the Greek will differ from manuscript to manuscript and sometimes our translations will differ based on that we'll have one tonight. When that, when that happens, sometimes the, I'll say the majority supports this. That's a reference to especially those minuscules. The minuscules were um, 
Some of them, like 33, it's a 9th century manuscript dated probably somewhere between 850 and 875 AD. 33 is closely based upon Vaticanus. And what were the languages of the papyrus and the three? Greek, Koine Greek, Greek of the period of the first century, common Greek of the first century AD. And while the lettering differed, when you got into the 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th century, the writing style differed. The language is the same. Including the three major... The th the, yeah, that, uh, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, and Vaticanus are all Koine Greek in terms of the language they contain. Uh, the lettering had evolved to an extent, and it's no longer classified as Koine, but the content of the language is. It's the same language. All of these are Greek manuscripts. All of them. Okay, I'm getting confused now. So Paul wrote these letters in like 57 AD or 60 AD. Or Paul's something. letters date to between the very late 40s to the end of the 50s. Okay. All of his letters. So none of these are original, obviously. We do not have any remains of originals. So the one that would be the earliest would be the one that was... P46... If it dates to 125, let's use that figure, which is the last, as late as Dr. Kim and his reevaluation said it could be. So let's just be conservative and say it was 125 AD. That means that Paul's letters were collected in the early 90s. We know that because Clement quotes from them as a single collection in the 90s. So they were collected as, it couldn't be any, uh, really any, any later than about 92, early 90s. So his letters were collected in the early 90s, and by 125, we have a mostly intact, significantly intact copy of his letters, of that collection. So you could say this sequence is what happened. Got... Um, Got the autograph, what Paul wrote. You have a copy that was made probably from the autograph by the person who was collecting the manuscripts in the late 80s or early 90s, and you get copy generation one. You then have the dissemination of that collection in copy generations two. The earliest P46 could be is copy generation. It theoretically could be a copy of the initial collection copy of the autograph. That's really good. Whereas with Sinaiticus, let, let's use Vaticanus, it's a little earlier. With, with Codex Vaticanus, which was probably an official publication of the Imperial Scriptorum at the direction of the Emperor Constantine. It is based on, let's just use the Romans, uh, the Pauline letters portion. It couldn't be any earlier than this. Somebody taking one of these 
and using them as the basis for that. But we know it's actually several more generations. Probably something more like ninth generation. <coughs> so a copy of 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 this generation of the actual initial collection of the author. All right. So if there's a discrepancy between the Vaticanus and P46, you would say P46 46 wins. Yeah. Unless you have a whole lot of examples from the Uncial generation, like Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, C, D, F, G, K, whatever, and a whole lot of minuscules as well saying something else. Then sometimes you have to flip a coin or look at what the context is. This is what they really do. They look at the context and they say, okay, it's more likely that the reading in Vaticanus is correct because it preserves a grammatical error. <laughs> and you're more likely going to have a scribe correcting the error than generating it in this kind of a case when you have everybody doing the same thing. So they look for other indicators or factors. We have one tonight that's a very fascinating example of which is it. But in 99.9999% of the cases where you have a difference, What it says here, and what it says here, doesn't really affect the reading much at all, if, if at all. And when you compare and contrast all the second, third, and fourth generation copies that we have in the papyrus collections, and all of the seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth generation copies that we have in the earlier exemplars of the Uncials, and the 27th and 34th and 193rd generations of the minuscules, when you compare and contrast them all together, the likelihood that we have established what this meant rises to a very high percentage. And after over a century of doing this as a science and an art, we're pretty sure, and you can see that because the last 25 years we're in the... Um, 27th revision edition of the Greek critical New Testament. It hasn't changed much since about the uh, 20th. And it's been mostly minor revisions, adjustments, a change here, a change there. Most of the changes have been in the textual apparatus that tells us where the text comes from. So, in truth, they've done a really good job of establishing what the autograph probably read, but in many of those cases, even if you have a disagreement on what it read, the alternatives are meaningless in terms of how they impact our faith. And we'll see one tonight. Are there any questions, more questions on this? Just real quickly now, Paul, was he dictating some of this too? Okay, the letter to the Romans was dictated, definitely. Okay. The letter to the Galatians was dictated. Uh, most of Paul's letters, certainly with the exception of Philemon, maybe one or two others, they were all dictated to a scribe who was trained and wrote them down. We know the name of the scribe who copied down Romans. His name was Tertius. Was he a pretty correct type of guy? Or did he <laughs> kind of, you know. All he says is, I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. So. He metaphorized, you know. 
he got he got to say hi. It, based on the training styles and how scribes of Anuensi were trained to do their job in the first century, we know that they were pretty pretty good about going from what they heard said to what they wrote down. The problem came when they could not write at the moment that they were being dictated to. And they had to remember and write later, which is one of the arguments for some of the grammatical differences and vocabulary usage differences that you find between most of Paul's letters and 1 Timothy. Because it seems like a fairly decent argument, and several New Testament scholars have recently made the argument, that 1 Timothy was written, was dictated by Paul, and, but wasn't written down for several weeks. And so the scribe had an opportunity to inject his own language use, his own grammar style. So the content is Pauline, but the grammar and, and vocabulary isn't. And I think that's a fairly decent argument. Um, but no, Paul dictated these letters, and they were written down by a scribe. Romans was written probably from Corinth prior to Paul's return to Jerusalem with the offering, indicating his desire to go to Rome for them then to prepare the way and make it possible for him to go on to Spain, to carry the gospel to Spain. We've talked about this before in our Bible studies. Why would Paul need help going to the western part of the empire? Besides the fact that it takes money to do that? There's a linguistic issue. Paul was a native Greek speaker. That was the language of the eastern half of the Roman Empire, even of the common person as well as the educated person. But in the western part of the empire, the common language of the common people was Latin. Educated people would speak Greek or read and write Greek, but they would speak Latin in the streets. And Paul's knowledge of Latin was probably not going to be high. He may have had a pigeon capability with Latin and would want help, either to build up his Latin vocabulary or for someone to come and translate for him. Either of those are possibilities. That seems to me to be a likely reason why he would want help from the Roman church. Okay. Dating it, some scholars date it as early as 52, 53. Some scholars date it as late as 57, 58. And who you ask will determine and, uh, what kind of uh, dating you will get. The consensus states it somewhere around 55, 56, 57. Uh, any questions before we dive on in? Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And right there we have our first textual difference. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Or Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Oh, most of the textual variants in the New Testament come down to differences like this. Is it Christ Jesus? Is it Jesus Christ? Is it Lord Jesus Christ? Is it Jesus Christ the Lord? Is it Jesus Christ our Lord? Is it Jesus Christ your Lord? I'm serious. Word order variants. 
And that's based mostly on convention in Greek, not on grammar. Word order variants make up a humongous percentage of the variants that we have in the New Testament. And here is one of them. Is it Jesus Christ, as in the NRSV? Or is it Christ Jesus, as in the NAS? Or the New Living? Or what does the King James say? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. What does the NIV say? It says uh, Christ Jesus because it doesn't have Mel Brooks. Christ Jesus. <laughs> and to give you an example of the sources for this, just so that you know, the transposition of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. My Greek text, the 27th edition of the Nestle Elan Greek New Testament, says Christu Yesu. It chooses Christ Jesus as the order. And their justification for doing that is Papyrus 10. And Manuscript Vaticanus. And Manuscript D. And quite a few others. Jesus Christ, the NRSV rendering and the rendering of the King James, is based upon a uh, somewhat more obscure, and I didn't list it, Papyrus 26, and Sinaiticus, and Alexandrinus, and the majority text, which is why the King James lists it that way. Does it matter which is, is it Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus? Oh, no. No, thank you. It doesn't matter. They say the same thing. <laughs> The difference is a word order convention in spoken Greek. And what it originally read is an argument for opinion of scholarship. The textual witness, in terms of the early textual witnesses, between P10 and P26, they're both equally strong. So that doesn't help. One has Vaticanus, the other has Alexandrinus and Sinaiticus and so forth. So how do you choose? Frankly, I don't care. <laughs> so the Greek New Testament, my Greek New Testament says Christ Jesus. So I'm going to stick with that. Servant, doulos, slave. It's more than just your average servant. It's a servant who has bonded to you, either for life or for a period of time. Hence the concept of slavery. Possession. Paul, the possession of Christ Jesus, you could read. Well, the, the, the bondservant, the slave of Christ Jesus. Okay, called, and my translation says called to be an apostle. Mm -hmm. So it's mine, but the to be is in italics. The to be is in italics, and as we have learned over the years, when you see the King Jimmy putting something in italics, it means it's been added. It's not in the Greek. It says, Kletos Apostolos, called an apostle. Possibly called as an apostle. Called apostle, literally. I might translate it as called an apostle, set apart for the Euagelion. My translation says gospel. Does anybody have good news? Yours has good news? I was hoping yours would have good news. The New Living Translation says 
chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. Gospel, euagelion, means good news. Actually, great message. And a proclaimer of that message was often called euagelion as well. So a gospeler. To me, there's a, there's this big difference between good news and great message. Yeah, define that. Well, there's lots of things that are good news. Mm-hmm. But if this is the great message, the good the word was used first of the announcement of the birth of the king, any king. That was the good news that was heralded when the prince was born. They would go out and give this good message, this great message, this good news. Great message does seem more specific, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And seems more important. Right. What good news is it talking about? Well, here it's the gospel of God, the good news, the great message of God, the good news of God. Smack dab in the middle of the word euagelion is its root, agalos, messenger of God, angel. All right, and so that that kind of gives you a hint of the kind of message. It's the message that the angel would proclaim. You could say. So is that a Christmas message again? Uh, yes, it could very well be uh, the Annunciation unto Mary. Even. That kind of a message. Uh, absolutely. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Hmm. Holy Scriptures. Grafas Agias. The holy writings. Yeah, it's a recognition. Uh, uh, which he promised beforehand through his prophets. And Jesus isn't just hanging out there. It was proclaimed beforehand in Scripture, in the holy writings. The good news, the great message, the gospel concerning his son. If gospel messages, if the good good news, the word euagelion was used about the birth of any old prince, even more so than the Son of God. Yeah. The gospel concerning his son, which was descended well, which was descended from David according to the flesh. Hmm. It's descended from David, Katasarka, according to the, the physicality of our existence. Physically he was a descendant of David. And was declared, proclaimed, established to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness or Holy Spirit by resurrection from the dead. So looking back from the resurrection, you can identify the truth of the incarnation. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who's doing the declaring here? Declared with power to be the Son of God. Who's doing the declaring? 
Paul's saying somebody. Well, <laughs> that's kind yeah, of what I was thinking. Yeah. But I have to diagram the sentence to make 100% sure. But it says, he, um, Paul, a bondservant of Christ, this is the NAS. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. See, that sounds like the... The, the what happened is what the, res the, the resurrection of the dead is how you know the truth of the incarnation. It's the proof of the incarnation. That's declaring it though. That existence, that who was, happening is declaring it. Who was declared the Son of God with power. According to the Spirit. By the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness. So it's the Holy Spirit, pneuma agiosenes, literally the Spirit, the Holy One, the Holy Spirit, <laughs> the Spirit of holiness, the Spirit who establishes holiness, according to the Spirit, proclaiming in the resurrection, through the resurrection, by the resurrection, by means of the resurrection, you know the truth that while he's born of David according to his sarki, his flesh, he is in fact the Son of God. The resurrection, the resurrection demonstrates that. It demonstrates that in plain sight to be to be seen. It makes it beyond question. Exactly, the resurrection testifies to the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. Born of David, descendant of David according to his flesh, son of God according to this. Yes. Paul wasn't in any uh, of the uh, councils that decided the Trinity. Nope. But he's proclaiming the Trinity here, isn't he? Thank you. You put your finger right smack dab on it. This, the Trinity is right here. You hear it in the references to God, that's Patros, Father. The Holy Spirit is the one doing the proclaiming through the resurrection. Jesus doesn't raise himself, he is raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you have Jesus proclaim the Son of God. Yeah, he wasn't at uh, Nicaea. <laughs> He wasn't there when that creed was written. What do you think? His but it's here. affected them, or did they take an independent step? When they, uh, it's well, a this isn't the only Trinitarian. <laughs> this isn't the only Trinitarian passage in the letters of Paul. It's all throughout his letters you find Trinitarian echoes. You find clear proclamate, clearer proclamations in Colossians. And, of course, you find direct references to the Trinity in Matthew, you know, which dates quite a bit before the Nicene Creed was written. But you hear it here, and we'll see it again in Romans, repeatedly, the activity of all three in close proximity. The fact you picked up on that, Lee, is fabulous. 
<laughs> Can you give him his disciple pin? Now? <laughs> he doesn't have to come anymore. Yes, skip ahead. Yes, yeah, skip, skip ahead. I'm picking up in the NAS again. Who was declared the Son of God with power? With power. Um, the, the there's a question as to where the power goes. Some translations want to stick power with the resurrection. Some want to stick it to him specifically. I think it reads better to say, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of Holiness. Could it be a difference between the Son of God, Jesus, before the resurrection, who was the Son of God, Jesus, but then after the resurrection? Could be. What it could be, probably. Think about. Think about the nature of his identity as God. Veiled in flesh, the, I love the the Christmas hymn. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Jesus in in fleshed. Jesus walking around on this earth. This is straight out of Philippians. Jesus in flesh is still God, but he doesn't exercise all the power that he could if he wanted to. If he did, he'd blow them away. He'd be fluorescing all the time like he did on the Mount of Transfiguration. So to be able to interact with him, to be able to crucify him, he didn't continually express and reveal that dunamis, that power, that dynamite that that he could very well have done in this life. But after the resurrection, that limitation no longer, we no longer need that limitation from him. And that power can now be known and received by us. And it's that power that then transforms us. I mean, the resurrection is more than just a proclamation about his coming back to life. Yeah, it's it's, it, it changes us. It talks about our coming back to life. Yep. Well, your, your example of you know, illuminating the, 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 the glow that we see from St. John Moses when he came back from the mountain. Mm -hmm. He didn't have that even after the resurrection, and that you know, he was walking with the men on the road to Emmaus. They obviously didn't think yeah. him to be any different, so he was not. Not necessarily. In that particular. In, given the circumstance, but he certainly was when uh, he revealed himself to Saul of Tarsus mm -hmm. on the road to Damascus. To <laughs> he was fluorescing there. He certainly has a lot more power now though, after the resurrection than he did before. We the see the power. I wouldn't say he exposes it more. He's yeah. using the same power, he just exposes. He's, he's using exposing. it more. He's exposing it more. We can see it more. We can experience it more. Post-resurrection. Now that I think is absolutely correct. Yes, it needs to be attached to the Son of God. Declared, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. There is a connection there too, but it needs to needs well, to be connected specifically. Mine. <laughs> mine says declared with power. Now here it says declared with, with power. power. Read yours, read yours. Verse 4. Yeah, it's very good. <laughs> I just, okay. Uh, was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power 
to be the Son of God by who through the Spirit of Holiness was declared with power right to be the Son of God by his resurrection by his resurrection but it's putting with power exactly with the de- declaration. declaration the declaration that's the way I read it it connects it in a different place exactly maybe he was trying to give us the opportunity to see whether we could recognize that power like he did in the Emmaus and they didn't they blew it <laughs> until the very end they're better than us and they still blew it <laughs> So we're not so bad. The uh, New Living Translation reads, And he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Read your Old God. Living. Read your Old Living, verse 4. And by being raised from the dead, he was proved to be the mighty Son of God with the holy nature of God himself. Now that's an example of, <laughs> of, of paraphrastic translation. I mean, that's fully paraphrased. Now, is it true? Yeah, that's true. But that's not what it says. <laughs> wow. Well, it changes power to mighty. Mighty, yeah. yeah like the mighty. Changes, it changes. The, it, it links it differently. It, yeah, it links it to mighty to him. Yeah. And, it, and linking it to him is not necessarily wrong. No. Um, well, my, I think mine blanks it to read the to king, him. Read the King James. Well, this is the new king. Well, close enough. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That's kind of how the NRSV comes. Yeah. That's not mine. Mine says with power. Mine's more like... Like hers? No, it's... <laughs> Hers is saying mighty, it's given them uh-huh. that power declared to the way it ought to be. Sure. Mine says it's declared with power. Declared with now, power. Almost yeah. like with my power. Yeah. Now if they put my in there, I would yeah. like that. Mm. It, was a, it was a powerful expression exactly. of the fact that he is the Son of God. Which is a whole lot different from yes. everything else we've been reading. Yes. Through whom? Now this Jesus... Son of David by the flesh, Son of God, proclaimed by the Holy Spirit in his resurrection, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. We have received grace and apostleship. Grace and apostleship. To bring about the obedience of faith. And mine reads, for obedience to the faith. For obedience to the faith? <laughs> mine says, to the obedience that comes from faith. <laughs> obedience that comes from faith? Yeah, that's probably more like you. <laughs> obedience of faith. The NRSV, to bring about the obedience of faith. To promote the obedience. <laughs> to uh, promote the obedience to the faith. Any other renderings there? 
Believe and obey. Let's break it down. Now that's interesting because it it breaks the two actions apart. It it breaks apart pistuo from hupakoen. Now the word obedience here is this is this is important. Um, first of all, obey sounds. Icky, doesn't it? <laughs> obey? Obey. 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 Okay. Obedience. Yeah. Break up the syllables between us and what we're doing. In the middle is its root, as is true in most Greek words. Akuo, hear. Hearing and doing. Hearing and obeying, obeying the cause you heard, placing into action the hearing. And then it links it to the to the next Greek word, Istiros, the literally faithful obedience or faith exercising obedience or obedience that is being exercised in, in true faith. Not a verb here. Sistio is not a verb here. It's pistis, the subject. So, obedient faith, obedience of faith, faithful obedience, all possible translations in the same concept. Or yours. <laughs> faith and obedience. Believe and obey. Believe, believe and obey. obey. Well, believe is a bad translation for Jesus. I mean, this is where we need. It's better than belief. Huh? It's better than belief than Oh yeah, belief. Yeah, belief is believe, weaker. Right? Yeah, this is when we need uh, to to adopt Dr. Gene Scott's pattern of making up a word in English. To exercise faith. English doesn't have a word for that. We use believe and that's weak. Faith is the direct correlation then of exercising the faith. Here, you can't really have faith. You can't have faith without obedience. That's also always true. You have to have obedience in connection with faith. Otherwise, you don't have faith. And you have to have faith in connection with obedience. Otherwise, you don't have obedience. How do you mean obedience? Stand up. You heard me say stand up, and I used the imperative tone in English. I gave a command, and you didn't do it. Therefore, that's disobedience. <laughs> but that's to obey, that's obey. To hear the command and do it. To act on it. And when you do it with faith as your object, that's the connection here in direct connection with what you believe and are confident about in Jesus. Do you believe you could split that and have faith 
concept? If you don't obey, you don't really believe. Your understanding of the concept, but you wouldn't be exactly rigidly obeying every aspect. Okay. Is obedience here a work or an act of faith? Oftentimes we talk about doing good works, and those are works. Faith, when it's in action as obedience, is not a good work because it doesn't flow from us. It flows from God to, through us, and out from us. We obey in our faithful action because we have the same dunamis, the same power in us that raised Jesus from the dead. If you don't have obedience, if faith doesn't produce obedience, your faith is merely belief. It's just knowledge. It's the same thing as saying if your faith isn't active, it's simple belief. Satan believes, but he has no faith. See, Vernon and I already have this. The church has certain beliefs. Yeah. And if you don't rigidly believe those certain beliefs, does that mean you have no faith? Depends on where you put your obedience. You're right about that. It does depend upon where you put your obedience, how you act upon it. It's not a subject of mind content. If the church makes laws, that's legalism. If we think, yeah, that's right, no, that's not right. But that doesn't hurt my faith. Your faith in what? In God. Thank you. In God. I will say this, and I'll leave it on the recording, and it will go out over the Internet. I don't care who hears it, including our new bishop. I have no faith in the denomination in which I am a minister, but I have faith, obedient faith, in God. That's pretty daring. It is. It really is. But it's a statement of fact. It has to be the object. The Lord himself has to be the object. Who is the object? It's not even the subjects like the resurrection or the virgin birth or the substitutionary atonement on the cross. No. It's who is the focus of your faith. I don't think God would say that, Darren. I would hope that the bishop would say that, too. But it is daring given the nature of denominations. Why don't you change that? No, that's going to go out as stated. And the PC nature of our denomination. Yeah, tell me about it. But the point, my point is, is that it's not a faith in structures or organization or rules or regulations or even in creeds or doctrines. As important as doctrines and creeds are, it's who. The apostles did not have a fully formed Trinitarian understanding. They didn't have a fully formed understanding of the consubstantial divinity and humanity of Jesus, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. They didn't have an understanding of the means of grace that was fully formed in the structure. They didn't understand fully in its depth what baptism was and is. It wasn't the doctrines or the mental assent to precepts that saved. It was faith, obedient faith in Jesus. 
in all of that means. It includes certain precepts and concepts, but more importantly, it is obedient faith in Jesus himself. And that's what's being said here. Through whom, verse 5, through whom we have received grace, charis, unmerited, unearned favor, love, and apostleship. Apostle means uh, sent one. It means one who is sent to proclaim a message, actually. So we have received unmerited favor and a commission to be sent out to bring about the obedience of faith. To bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, the nations, literally, for his name's sake, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ or called to belong to Jesus Christ. So he begins verse 1 by identifying himself as a servant or a slave, a doulos belonging to Jesus, and he ends it that we are too also to be douloi, servants belonging to Jesus. Mine says called to. Called to? Belong to Jesus. Called call to belong to Jesus Christ. Mine says, among whom you also are are the called of Jesus Christ. Ooh, yeah. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Hmm? What is the Greek word called? Kletoi. Kletoi. In ois estakai umes kletoi Jesu Christu. Including you who are called to be of Jesus Christ. The Gentiles there, is that when they're using that in that term, they're thinking the way we would Gentiles and Jews and say, okay, well, it's just the Gentiles, not the Jews, or is it more generic in all the nations regardless of their religious Ethnicin is the word. We get the word ethnic from it. So all ethnic people. Yeah, mine just says among all nations. Nations. Goyim in Hebrew. I would say it's all non-Jews who have not heard the message. So you would exclude the Jews? <clears throat> to the extent that this is a he's making this proclamation to Gentiles. He's writing this to the church in Rome, which is mostly a Jewish Christian community at this point. And what he's telling them is, we're proclaiming this message to Gentiles. We're incorporating non-Jewish people into the family of God, which, a, which as an idea is foreign to Judaism. Well, and Paul repeatedly mm -hmm. identifies himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. Gentiles. Yeah. That would seem to distance you from the Jews, don't you? Mm -hmm. Well, he identifies Peter as the apostle to the Jews mm -hmm. and himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. And when he uses the Greek word, it's very broad. The nations is the, is the concept, and it means non Jewish peoples. That's how the Jews viewed it. To all, let's go ahead and finish out the paragraph. To all God's beloved in Rome who are called, and here it says, to be saints. Nah, -uh, no. 
who are called saints. Kletois agios. You are called saints. Wow, they may have been a bunch of sturdy, stinking, rotten rats, <laughs> but they're still saints. That is quite a difference if you put the two B, because you can be misled into thinking you've got to become a saint, whereas he's saying you are already a saint. You are saints. Another possible rendering of this would have could possibly be called as saints. That'd <laughs> <laughs> you're not going okay but you're saying yeah you could be uh, you are you're Call, you are called as a saint you are saintly <laughs> <laughs> not with an L-E-E -E. he may be disobedient however <laughs> <laughs> he never stood up that's right that's what I'm thinking that's what I'm thinking love you Lee <laughs> And then we finally have, now in Paul's letters always have this opening statement. Usually it occurs right after the from line, and then the to line, and then grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But between the from and the to line in the email, we have uh, four verses, five verses here of material which essentially contains a humongous chunk of the gospel of Jesus Christ right there smack dab at the beginning of the letter. To all of God's beloved, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace, charis, unearned favor to you, and peace, a reine, the end of againstness, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two more persons of the Trinity right there. Yeah, I was thinking if you just added the Holy Spirit, we'd do that. Mm -hmm. but, that but the pattern that Paul used was yeah. continually, and if you follow his letters, it this yeah. is almost, it's just his proclamation mm -hmm. of greeting and blessing at the beginning of every letter. Grace to you in peace. And, I mean, we just kind of fly over that. But we have unearned favor, love, acceptance, and the end of division, of separation from, of warfare with God. Is that just That's over with, with now. Huh? Is that just warfare with God? Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When, we, when God establishes peace between us and God, and it's God that does it, God that bridges the gap, we don't. God did it in Jesus. When God establishes peace, when we accept and receive the grace and peace, it then has an impact that changes our relationships with others. But it starts from God. And only God can establish true peace. Remember what Jesus said? Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Not the world's peace. The world's peace is false. True peace comes only from God. Peace that passes all understanding. Precisely. It, it is beyond our ability to quantify it, to understand it. And to do it. <laughs> we <laughs> can't generate it. Yeah, yeah. We can respond to it. We can receive it and respond to it and apply it and treat others with that same grace and peace. And when you do that, you are agios. You are a saint. Hear that, Lee? <laughs> <laughs> anyway.
have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2008 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.